Well, please turn now in God's Word to the book of Psalms again, uh, but this time in the Church Bible, uh, to Psalm 15, page 543, if you're using the Church Bible. And we're going to read this short psalm. Uh, In the summer months, over the last few years, we have been uh, working our way through the psalms, and uh, we're picking that series up again uh, this evening uh, with Psalm 15, a psalm of David. O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart, who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt, and does not change, who does not put out his money at interest, and does not take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall never be moved. Amen. This is God's Word. I don't know if you read magazines or what kinds of magazines you read, but uh, I have noticed from time to time on magazine racks uh, magazines that feature something like this on the front cover. Is your relationship healthy? Uh, And inside there is a quiz to assess whether or not your relationship is in a healthy state. And maybe there'll be 10 questions, 15 questions, 50 questions, and there are multiple choice answers, A, B, C, D, E. And then at the end, you have the assessment, the evaluation. If your answers are mostly A's, well, then that means that things are in good shape. If they're mostly D's, well, you need to put in a bit of work, and perhaps it's particularly in the area of communication that you need to focus. Or perhaps uh, you've seen articles in magazines that promise six secrets of a better marriage. Maybe it's just uh, the kinds of magazines that I've uh, come across that that these are in. Maybe you've no idea what I'm talking about, but uh, these seem to be very, very common, these quizzes, these articles to help us to have better relationships. Well, I wonder how you would rate the quality of your relationship with God. Would you say that it's healthy? Would you say that you have a close relationship? Would you say that you're enjoying fellowship with the Lord? I wonder, do you know how to assess whether or not you have a good, healthy thriving relationship with God. might be quite helpful if there were a quiz that we could devise that would show us, that would tell us how good our communion with God is. But actually, that's 
really what Psalm 15 is. It begins with a question in verse 1. And this is the key to the psalm. This tells us what the whole psalm is about. O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? Now, it's really important to understand that this is not about salvation by works. This is not asking the question, how can I get right with God? This is not asking the question, how do I become a Christian? What do I need to do in order to be in a right relationship with God? Psalm 15 is not telling us that you have to do all these things to stay saved. And if you don't do all these things, well, then you're going to lose your salvation. This is not a psalm about how you get into the Lord's tent in the first place. This is a psalm about the day-to-day -day experience of living with the Lord in his tent. Psalm 15 is describing the kind of people that we need to be if we're going to enjoy a close, healthy relationship with the Lord. You understand the difference? This is not talking about how you get into a relationship with the Lord, how you get right with God, how you get saved. That's not what it's about. The question at the beginning tells us that this is about how we enjoy living with the Lord, how we can stay close to the Lord. To use the illustration that God himself invented, the relationship between God and his people is like marriage. If you're a Christian, if you have trusted the Lord Jesus Christ to be your Savior, then you're married to the Lord. And nothing in all the universe can change that. But a marriage can be strong or weak. It can be healthy or unhealthy. A husband and wife can be husband and wife, and yet they are not close. They're very, very distant. And the quality of a marriage and the quality of a husband and wife's communion with one another depends on the way they live, doesn't it? depends on the kind of people they are. It depends on their behavior. It depends on their attitudes. It depends on their characters. It depends on their priorities and their values. As a husband and wife grow in their knowledge of one another, they become more sensitive to one another. They work at changing the things in themselves that need to be changed to become more and more what the other person needs them to be and wants them to be. And as they both do that, then they grow closer together, don't they? They enjoy one another's company more and more. They're always married, whether they're 
close or not, they're, they're, they're always married. But the closeness of their relationship, the quality of their relationship depends on the kind of people they are. If a wife hates her husband drinking and smoking, and every day he insists on going out and getting drunk and smoking 40 cigarettes a day, it's hard to see how that couple are ever going to have a healthy, close marriage relationship. They're still husband and wife. Nothing's going to change that. But they're not going to have a good marriage. And that's what Psalm 15 is talking about. That's what it's like in our relationship with the Lord. Psalm 15 is giving us a blueprint for a close and fulfilling relationship with God. What kind of person dwells in the Lord's tent? What kind of man or woman enjoys a happy marriage to the Lord? The psalmist describes the kind of believer who's going to enjoy a strong, close, intimate, fulfilling relationship with God. And if you wouldn't rate your relationship with the Lord as healthy this evening, well, perhaps it's because you're not doing the things that God says here will bring you close to the Lord. O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? Let's look uh, at this psalm under three headings. First of all, the qualities God desires. And we'll spend most of our time here. The qualities God desires. The psalmist gives us six pairs of qualities that describe the person, the kind of person, who will enjoy close fellowship with God. It's not an exhaustive list. Uh, there are similar lists in Psalm 24, as we sang earlier, and in Isaiah 33. But these are representative things. These are the kinds of things that the Lord says that he looks for in the people that he's closest to. And so we could describe these as the six keys to a happy relationship with God. The first has to do with character in verse 2. Character. This first pair begins with a kind of a broad outline and then zooms in after verse 2 in the details. What are the two things that are said here about character? First of all, the person who enjoys close fellowship with God is the person who walks blamelessly. Now, that doesn't mean that he's perfect. This word has the sense of wholeness, soundness, uh, well-roundedness. In other words, this is the kind of man or woman who keeps all God's commandments. Not just a few. He keeps them all. He keeps them all consistently. Every day. Not just on Sabbath day. No matter where he goes, no matter who he's with, he lives them out. He walks 
blamelessly. Uh, he doesn't just pay lip service. He doesn't just say that he believes this stuff. He walks blamelessly. He lives it out. And the tense of the verb means that this is something continuous. This is typical of him. This is the kind of person he is. He's not perfect, but he does seek in every aspect of his life to walk blamelessly. And the other thing that's said about his character is that he does what is right. doesn't say that he does what is easy or what is convenient or what makes him happy or what makes him fulfilled. He does what is right. And what is right is what God says is right. Not what the world says is right, not what the majority says is right, not what is fashionable, only what God has said in his word. That's what is right. And whether the world agrees with it or not, that's what he does. Character. And then the second pair of qualities has to do with speech. The end of verse 2 and the beginning of verse 3. He speaks truth in his heart and does not slander with his tongue. Words matter hugely. What we say and what we don't say, according to Psalm 15, has a massive impact on the quality of our relationship with God. What you speak about, how you speak, what you say and don't say, not in here, not just in here, but out there, in school, and in your neighborhood, and in the workplace, impacts massively on the quality of your relationship with God. He speaks truth in his heart. What does that mean? Well, what we say in our heart is a way of describing our deepest commitments, isn't it? The things that we say in our heart to ourself, not, not what we say with our lips that everybody else hears, but what we say in our heart shows what we really believe. In the previous psalm, in Psalm 14, verse 1, we're told that the fool says in his heart, there is no God. Well, the believer speaks truth in the heart. He says what he means, and he means what he says. And he's also characterized by what he doesn't say. According to verse 3, he doesn't slander. He doesn't gossip. And as we thought about this morning, this is one of the besetting sins, isn't it, of the church. Perhaps there is more harm done by slander and gossip and criticism and people's words than anything else. Social media, of course, makes this a thousand times worse, a million times worse. Christians commenting on situations that they know nothing about, that don't concern them in any way. Christians attacking other Christians, biting and devouring other Christians online for the world to see. He does not slander with his tongue. Matthew Poole, commenting on this verse, says, Pity your brothers 
let it be enough that godly ministers and Christians are loaded with reproaches by wicked men. There is no need that you should join with them in this diabolical work. No slander with his tongue. Character, speech, and then again in verse 3, this, the next pair uh, has to do with conduct. Conduct. Uh, it has to do with our behavior towards other people. It says that he does no evil to his neighbor. It's not talking about a close friend. It's not talking about another Christian. The word neighbor here means anyone. Anyone that you have any association with at all. Remember the question that uh, the lawyer asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? And you remember the answer. Anyone is your neighbor. Anyone who needs your help, anyone that you're in a position to help, that's your neighbor. He does no evil to his neighbor. This is very wide-ranging, isn't it? Doesn't matter what they believe. Doesn't matter what color they are or where they come from. They may be a homosexual. They may be a, a trans person. They may be an atheist. They may be a Muslim. You do no evil to your neighbor. And then the other thing uh, that we're told about his conduct is that he does not take up a reproach against his friend. Uh, this seems to mean, it could be uh, talking about something verbal, but it, it, it seems to mean taking up something discreditable in the sense of raking it up unnecessarily. Uh, that's what taking up a reproach uh, seems to mean here, raking up unnecessarily something from someone's past, something that they did, something that was wrong, but it's, it's over, it's past, it's it, it, it's, it's finished. The Bible says that love covers a multitude of sins, and that's really just another way of saying he does not take up a reproach against his friend. Character, speech, conduct, and then the fourth pair has to do with affections. The believer's affections. This, this part of the psalm speaks about a believer's attitude to other people. What kind of person does he admire? Who does he look to as a role model? Well, it says that the person who has a good relationship with God, the sort of person that is close to God, uh, he makes it unambiguously clear who has his respect. He's not two-faced. He's not the sort of man who's trying to be friends and keep in with everyone. No, he despises the vile person. The vile person is the sort of person that sets themselves deliberately against God, who assaults God's people and tries to destroy them. And, and, and the believer has no respect, no admiration for that kind of person. Instead, the psalmist says, the godly man's affections are for those who fear the Lord. They're the people that he respects. I wonder who you admire. I wonder who your role models are. That's a good question for 
you children, you boys and girls and young people, teenagers. Who do you respect? Who do you look up to? Who do you admire? Who do you really admire? I'm sure you would all give the right answer, or at least you know what the right answer is. But actually, who are the people that influence you most? Because they're the people that you really are looking to as role models. Is it social media influencers? These heroes of YouTube and TikTok and so on? Is it celebrities, pop stars, sports stars? Or even at school or at camp? Who are your role models? Who are the people that you admire, that you think well of, that you want to be near, that you want to get close to, that you want to be friends with? Is it the popular ones who are always at the center of things? They're always getting a laugh at someone else's expense? Or is it the humble people, the servant-hearted people, the kind people, the spiritually-minded people? Because it says here that the sort of person who has a close relationship with God, they honor those who fear the Lord. It's easy to to do the opposite, isn't it? To despise those who fear the Lord. To look down on the mother who gives up her career, who gives up money and position and influence and status to stay home and look after little babies and children. It's easy to despise that elderly saint who copes with loneliness and chronic, excruciating pain day in, day out, and they never grumble. They never complain. They're the people that we ought to admire. He honors those who fear the Lord, his affections. And then the fifth pair has to do with integrity. In verse 4 again, who swears to his own hurt and does not change, who keeps his word even when it hurts. We're allergic to hurt, aren't we? So many Christians seem to have the opinion that if it hurts, if it makes me feel bad, if it makes me feel sad, if it makes me feel down on myself in any way, well, then it can't be God's will. That's not what it says here, is it? Keeps his word even when it hurts. I wonder when did it last hurt you to keep your word? We've all made vows, those of us who are church members, and sometimes it hurts to keep those vows. Maybe the last thing in the world that you feel like doing is going to public worship or to the prayer meeting or to the midweek meeting. But you've said that you'll be there. You've committed to being there. And so you have to be there, even if it hurts. I'm sure you young people know what it's like when you're faced with this dilemma. It shouldn't really be a dilemma, but 
you've made a commitment, you've said you're going to meet up with someone, you've go, you're going to do something, and then a much, much, much more attractive offer materializes. And our instinct is to get out of the, the thing that we don't really want to do so that we can do the thing that looks much more fun and much more exciting. Integrity swears to his own hurt and does not change. And then the sixth pair has to do with the use of money in verse 5. This pair of examples uh, talks about putting money before people. He does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. Apparently the interest rates well, they haven't been great recently, so we don't know much about this, but um, in the ancient Near East, interest rates could sometimes be as high as 50%. That was the going rate. That was the market rate. But just because it's possible to make a huge profit doesn't mean that it's right or that we should. That may well be what everyone else is doing in the marketplace, but the believer is not obsessed with maximizing his return. He's not greedy. He's not covetous. He's not obsessed with squeezing every last penny that he can out of his investment. No, instead he puts people before profit. Character, speech, conduct, affections, integrity, and use of money. These six pairs are not an exhaustive list, remember, of all that God desires in his people. But it gives us a good idea, doesn't it, of the kind of man, the kind of woman who will enjoy close communion with the Lord. And so the question for us is, does this describe me? How do I measure up as a Christian, as a believer? Do these six qualities reflect my life? Maybe we've minimized the importance of some of these things. And this is a bit of a wake-up call to us. We, we, we haven't realized that the health of our relationship with the Lord, not, not our standing before Him, not our, not our security as Christians, we're safe for eternity. If we've trusted Christ, nothing and no one can pluck us out of His hand. We're not talking about our salvation here. We're talking about the quality of our relationship the closeness of our communion with the Lord. And maybe we haven't realized that there's a, there's a direct correlation between these things and the quality of our relationship with the Lord. There may be other reasons, of course, why the Lord withdraws a sense of his presence at different times in our lives. But the first place to look the first question to ask is found here in Psalm 15. How am I getting on in these six areas? The qualities God desires. Then secondly, more briefly, the qualities Jesus Christ demonstrates. The qualities Jesus Christ demonstrates. If you want to learn how to do something 
it's almost always best to watch someone who knows what they're doing. If you want to learn how to change the oil in your car, uh, well, maybe the best thing is just to give it to Drew to do. Uh, but if you want to learn how to do it, watch him doing it. If you want to learn how to solder an electrical circuit, watch Andy Graham doing it. Now, Drew and Andy could give us a list of instructions on how to change the oil in your car and how to solder an electrical circuit, and no doubt that would be useful. But it is far better, isn't it? It's far more effective to see it being done properly. Psalm 15 gives us a set of tremendously helpful, clear descriptions, statements about the kind of person who enjoys communion with God. But wouldn't it be even better to see these things embodied in a perfect living human being? And to be able to watch what each of these qualities looks like, not just in theory, but in practice. Well, that's exactly what we have, isn't it, in the Lord Jesus because each of these pairs can be read as a straightforward description of him. Jesus walked blamelessly and did what was right and spoke truth in his heart, and so on and so on. And so his whole life was one of perfect, deep, rich, intimate, delightful communion with God. He loved to be in God's presence. And God poured out his blessing upon the Lord Jesus, the blessing that's described at the end of verse 5. He who does these things shall never be moved. That was true, wasn't it, of the Lord Jesus? He was never moved. He was stable. He was at peace. He was content no matter what the circumstances were. Do you want to know what Psalm 15 looks like in practice? Look at Jesus Christ. Read the Gospels over and over again. Memorize every single recorded word that Jesus ever spoke. Memorize every single interaction that he ever had with another person, with friends, with enemies, with strangers, with outcasts, with those in authority over him, with children, with parents, with those who were physically hurting, with those who were in anguish in their hearts. Study his life and see what it looks like to walk blamelessly and to do what is right and to do no evil to your neighbor and to keep your oath even when it hurts. Here is the true man, the perfect man, who sojourned in God's tent and dwelt every moment of his life on God's holy hill. And he did these things as a man, with a human nature, just like your human nature, in the power of the Holy Spirit. And you and I can do the same. We're not going to do it perfectly like he did, but we can do it really, and we can do it truly 
in the power of the Holy Spirit as well. And that brings us lastly, and just in a word or two, to to the qualities the Holy Spirit develops. The qualities the Holy Spirit develops. At the moment of conversion, the second, the instant that you become a Christian, as soon as you trust Jesus Christ as your Savior, God justifies you. He treats you as though Jesus' perfect record of living out Psalm 15 was done by you. God treats you as though you had done all that Jesus did when he was alive on earth. And at the cross, Jesus was punished as though our failure in each of these six areas was his failure. And as we read in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, that is why God is able to declare us not guilty. It's because of what Christ has done for us. The life that he lived in our place and the death that he died in our place. All of that happens the instant that you become a Christian. But when you're converted... When you become a Christian, God also begins a process, a lifelong process that will last until your dying breath, the process of sanctifying you, making you more and more holy, transforming you in your heart and in your actions and in your words and in your attitudes by the Holy Spirit so that you do actually begin to live out Psalm 15. The Holy Spirit is changing your character and your conduct and your speech to become more and more like Christ's. And as we trust Jesus day by day, and as we repent of our sins, and as we use all the different means of grace that God has given us, as we come to church especially, that's the most important of all, coming to church on the Lord's Day for public worship and in family worship and in our own private personal worship as we meditate on the Bible and as we pray, as we uh, take the Lord's Supper, as we use all these things that God has given us, the Holy Spirit empowers us to do these things in Psalm 15 more and more consistently. And the more we do them, the better we do these things, the more fully we sojourn in the Lord's tent and dwell on his holy hill. The more and the better you do these things by the power of the Holy Spirit, we can't do them in our own strength, but by the power of the Holy Spirit, as we do these things described in Psalm 15, The more and the better we do them, the deeper and the better and the richer and the more delightful our fellowship with God will be. We'll know more of his presence, more of his blessing. We'll delight in his presence. We'll love him for who he is and not just because of the wonderful things that he gives us. 
will glorify him and will enjoy him. I wonder how many of us would say that we enjoy God. Because that's really what all of this is about, isn't it? It's about enjoying God. Do you enjoy God? Do you look forward to praying? Because you're praying to God. You're communing with the Lord. Do you look forward to worship? Yes, we look forward to meeting with one another and catching up on each other's news and seeing our children play together. And there's lots and lots of things about worship that we enjoy. But is the great thing, the best thing, that God is here and we're coming to worship Him? Do we enjoy Him for His own sake, for who He is, and not just because of the blessings that He gives us? The psalmist says, if you want to enjoy God, this is the kind of person that you need to be. And this is the kind of person that Jesus shows you how to be. And this is the kind of person that the Holy Spirit is able to make you to be more and more. He who does these things shall never be moved. Amen. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for giving us this psalm to help us to have a better, stronger, deeper, healthier relationship with you. Thank you that you desire a closer relationship with us, your people, that it grieves us when we sin and when we are far from you. We pray, Lord God, that you will give us the grace to repent, to confess our sins, to turn from our sins, and to pursue these righteous things that you have commanded us and called us to be. We thank you, Lord, that you have not given us a standard that is impossible to reach. We thank you that your Holy Spirit dwells within us and that he empowers us to live this kind of life. Thank you for the Lord Jesus who lived this life in our place and took the punishment that we deserve for our failure to live this kind of life so that we can be justified. We thank you that he shows us what it looks like in practice to live these things out in a fallen world. So we pray that in these coming days, in this coming week, in all of our interactions with others, in all of our private thoughts and secret desires, we pray, Lord God, that we will be more and more uh, this kind of man, this kind of woman, by your grace and for your glory, so that we might better enjoy you as our God. And now may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.